Hello everyone, welcome once again to Reason for Hope. We're very glad you're joining us. A Reason for Hope, in case it's your first time with us, is an hour-long live broadcast guided by your questions on the Bible. That's that's it. That's what we do. You can send in your questions on the Bible through multiple online platforms, which I'll go over in just a moment. Send your questions in. We have some wonderful guests here who love the Lord and love the Word and love to answer your questions. Um, so it might be a question on a passage of Scripture, maybe something that's confused you in the Bible, maybe even something on a more personal level, something you're going through in your in your life and you'd like a biblical perspective. What does God's Word say about certain things or certain decisions or certain lifestyles, maybe other religions and how they compare to Christianity, anything really along those lines, as long as it's an honest question and as long as you know uh, the Bible is where we find the answers. We want to share with you God's Word and what He says about that as accurately as we possibly can with His help. So that's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. I'm your host today and I'll be on those platforms with you, filled in the questions as they come on in. With us today, we have our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, Pastor Scott Richards with us. Are you doing well? I'm doing great. Yeah, good Can't to wait to tackle the questions. I know, we never yeah. know where it's gonna go. We never yeah. know. Well, thank you for being here and making the time today for us. Also with us, Pastor Sean Richards, our regular, me and you both are pretty regular kind of dudes. How you doing? Good. I've been a lot of driving today. Yes, and you have. He has a lot of driving ahead of him tomorrow, so prayers for all of us. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Tucson is a, it's a, it's got a small town feel, but it's a big town, a lot of people, a lot of traffic, a lot of lot destinations. Of, a lot of destinations, <laughs> a lot of roadworks and it's our density. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And it's a it's a special day today because finally I've been waiting for this day we're all wearing a blue polo shirt. We didn't plan this, but I've been waiting for this to happen. The, the stars have aligned. Dave's mom are. insisted. <laughs> she did. <laughs> David, put on your blue polo. <laughs> yeah, that's how she sounds too. So I'm very excited. Sounded more Monty Python than. <laughs> <laughs> that's how she sounds. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> My mother is John Cleese himself. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, enough of that idle banter. As I mentioned, A Reason of Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m here at Mountain Standard Time. I'm here in Tucson, Arizona, as I mentioned. And uh, it's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. So we'd, we'd like to warmly invite you if you are looking for somewhere to fellowship in uh, the Tucson area. We're right near Princeton I-10 on the west side of the freeway. You're more than welcome to come check us out. We have three Sunday morning services and a Wednesday evening service as well. If you check out our website there, calvarychristianfellowship.com, you'll find more information about all that stuff. We have Bible studies and support groups and kinds of things as well so so don't be a stranger uh, spend a moment on our website there but we are live if you follow that watch live tab that takes you out to our live page uh, the direct link which you can type right into your address bar is ccftucson.online.church and that will take you to the same place as that link from calvarychristianfellowship.com uh, when we're offline you'll see a countdown to our next event you'll see a schedule of upcoming live events uh, but we're online right now so you'll see the video you can sign in with a username and there's a chat function where you can send us your question um, and we will be receiving that. Like I say, I'll be right there with you in that uh, uh, chat room and we'll receive your uh, question uh, that way. So any question you have on the Bible, any honest question, send it right in through that method. We're on Facebook as well. We're uh, live right there as we speak. That's another way you can send your question in just through the chat that's attached to the video there. And don't forget to like and to share. We'd appreciate that as we grow this ministry. Certainly if you've been blessed by the ministry, we'd appreciate that like and share but again send your questions in through facebook if you're joining us on facebook we have an app for your mobile device as well look for calvary christian fellowship of tucson in your app store look for that red background with the white calvary chapel dove logo that's our app 
and you can watch us on your mobile device. And if you'd like to watch us on the big screen, which why wouldn't you want to gather around the, the big screen with your family, you can do so on Roku or Apple TV if you have those devices. Again, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson uh, in your channel store and add us as a channel on Roku or Apple TV. Uh, we're on YouTube as well, live as we speak. Look for A Reason for Hope. That is the name of the channel there on YouTube, A Reason for Hope. Um, we're live as we speak. And once again, don't forget to to uh, like and subscribe. And if you want to click on that notification bell, that will give you a little prompt every time we're live as well. Uh, but you can send your question in through the comment, uh, comment box there on the uh, live video. And it's a great place for archives as well. Whenever we've been live, whether it's our services here or um, uh, Reason for Hope shows, it's automatically archived there for you on that live tab. So if you miss something or you want to recap, that's a great place to go there and we post uh, other videos as well some questions of the week and things like that as well our pastor scott here our senior pastor here at calvary christian fellowship who i just introduced he's on twitter so if you're on twitter and would like to follow along with him you most certainly can scott r4h is his handle scott letter r number four letter h how are things in the, the twitter verse these days uh i haven't had really much of a chance to get on there today but no, like a real highlight uh a uh, fellow uh, uh posted a uh, comment about uh, the World Weekly News uh, picture of Hillary Clinton uh, adopting a uh, space alien. And, How uh, cute. and I, I said, you know, I've always been a big Bat Boy fan. If you remember <laughs> the World Weekly News, they always had features on Bat the Boy. Bat Boy, yes. And uh, lo and behold, uh, World Weekly News' Twitter platform liked me today as a result of that. Oh, very <laughs> nice. So, well, congratulations. A, a, a real red, red letter day in my social media <laughs> career. What a great day. Yeah. What a great day for yeah. you. World Weekly News knows who I am. <laughs> You've arrived. Or at least knew what That's you it. said at one point. You, yes. can, you can retire happy now. That's it. That's right. But anyway, follow along with us. That, that's your highlight for today. Scott, that's right. <laughs> Scott Arthur H on Twitter there. He posts all kinds of stuff, um, highlights from the show, but uh, also commentary on world events. There's so much going on in the world, in the news, as it pertains to end times and uh, Bible prophecy and those kind of things. And so follow along uh, with him for an informative and sometimes humorous time on Twitter. We're on Rumble as well. We're not live on Rumble, but we post videos there. If you're on that platform, that's kind of a newer platform, I guess. A reason for hope, Bible Q and A is the name of our channel there. And then our email address, should you want to send us a little email, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com. You can send us your question there as well. If you're joining us on the radio, we're very glad that you're joining and, and listening in. But keep in mind that you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded, so you're just a day behind there. Um, but use that uh, email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we'll be glad to get to that question on our next show. Well, with all that being said, I say we're live on all those platforms. Do send in your question, as long as it's an honest question. We're glad to receive that, and uh, we will search the scriptures to find an answer for you. So please do feel free to send those questions in. I'll be checking all those platforms. And before we go any further, we'd love to pause to pray at this point. Sean, would you like to pray for us today? Happy to. That'd be great. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. And we want to invite you to be here as well. To give my father and I grace seasoned with salt in our words as we're sharing yours and allow your name to be honored, your people to be exhorted, comforted, and edified as a result of the time spent here. And once again, just thank you that we have the chance to be a part of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, Scott, is there anything you wanted to share with us? Sometimes you give us a 
kind of a news update or something going on? I don't know if you have anything in mind. Or? Well, uh, the uh, interesting uh, uh, kind of, uh, I don't want to use the term blowback, but uh, certainly gotten some input from some people about our study in Ezekiel chapter 33 last night about mm -hmm. Ezekiel being a watchman on the wall, giving uh, God giving him uh, that uh, particular calling from him. And uh, in verse 7 of Ezekiel 33, it says, So you, son of man, I made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Now, the controversial issue that comes up is this. Um, so, is the Bible teaching that we, in a sense, are accountable for the spiritual destiny of other people based on whether we share with them or not share with them uh, on such a level that God uh, will uh, one day hold us accountable for their blood. Mm. Uh, the reason that this gets to be a, a fairly controversial subject is way over there in the book of Acts chapter 20. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was dealing with uh, his last uh, remarks he would make uh, to the Ephesian elders, uh, when he was giving them his uh, farewell address, made another very interesting statement, uh, an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 33, uh, where he says, and indeed now I know that you all among, this is chapter uh, Acts 20 and verse 25, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men for I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So uh, there are those who will say, well, okay, you know, we see this uh, Old Testament principle in Ezekiel 33. Uh, we see Paul making a direct uh, allusion, if not a quotation of it, in uh, Acts chapter 20. Does that mean that uh, every time, well, we think we might have a chance to share Jesus with somebody, but we freeze in a sense in the clutch. Does that mean that if that person goes on and we didn't tell them about the Lord, we didn't mm. tell them about his grace, and we didn't tell them about forgiveness, we didn't tell them they were going down a uh, spiritual road where the bridge is out, that uh, we're on the hook for that, that God will hold us accountable for his blood. So, uh, you know, I think that raises some pretty interesting issues, don't you think? Yeah, and obviously when we are looking at the implications of any particular passage of scripture it's important to ask who is being addressed is this a general audience all those who name the name of the lord or christ in this case today or is it speaking to someone with a particular spiritual calling and tying in that interpretation to other things as well exactly so the question is i think it's fairly straightforward is ezekiel the kind of, or was Ezekiel given the kind of calling that every Christian is called to give? In a sense, yes. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus' great commission was speaking to all of his followers, go and make disciples. Now that's just as much a follower as doing something with people who've already made a decision with Christ, building them up in the knowledge and fear of the Lord, but also in evangelism, in a sense. But then we examine that interpretation and say, so all are called to be evangelists then. Mm 
while all are called to make disciples, to build one another up in the love and the fear of God, but we cross-reference that in conclusion, that's important, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Paul enters into 1 Corinthians 13 with a hypothetical question, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all evangelists, do all speak with tongues? The answer is obviously no, so that doesn't check out. What is Ezekiel? in this sense. He's a prophet of God. He's a spokesman of God. He's someone who's been given more revelation of God's character, and thus, a la James, let not many of you become teachers because you incur a chapter 3 and verse 1 says... Stricter judgment. Yeah. See the point. He would be held accountable for more because he knew more and was called to more. But if, on the other hand, someone who has the opportunity and willfully neglects it, are they going to be held to the same standard of someone who is entirely separate from any opportunity. You know, say, for example, I'm called to witness to people. Well, there are people who aren't being witnessed to in Uganda. Am I responsible for their blood because I have the capacity of reaching them somehow on the internet? Well, God calls and opens the door an opportunity. I might get a chance to maybe bump into one of them on Omegle, but it's not reasonable for me to conclude I'm responsible for the salvation of everyone because I'm called to a specific audience. You're testing conclusions. So if I go all the way to 500 and I say, called to be evangelist, someone isn't evangelized, it's my fault. That doesn't jibe. Yeah. Some, everyone's called to be an evangelist. Scripture contradicts that. Someone's given an opportunity to evangelize and neglects it. That's a sin, but it's not salvific that doesn't conflict or fall in line with what we know how someone is saved or how someone is unsaved, a la Matthew, was it uh, 13? Uh, the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? 12. 12, yeah. thank you. I knew it was close. Mm -hmm. So this is what narrows it down then for us. If it's not the end-all, be-all, we're responsible for the blood of all men. If it's not that we're responsible for fulfilling every spiritual gift, since the Spirit gives to each one whom he wills, and that includes the gift of evangelism. If it's not that we're called for the spiritual, and here's another key, outcome of every conversation, because 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3 says what? No one calls Jesus Lord except by our arguments? No. No, it says by the Holy Spirit, right. which I am not and you are not. Yeah. Note that. Yeah. Well, Kenneth Copeland would say otherwise, but he's a heretic. So let's note that point. When we're talking about these issues, how far should I take this? Well, if you take it anywhere, examine that taken with Scripture and make sure that you didn't go farther than what's real. In Ezekiel's case, he was a prophet of God who was given revelation from God, visions from God, and was accountable to God to the ministry of who? the Israeli exiles in Babylon. If he neglected to minister to them, then God would hold him accountable for neglecting the ministry he called him, notice the pronouns, to. But if on the other hand we take a step back and go, so what's the application? What's the principle that we should all take away from this? Because later New Testament Revelation says what? That these things were written for our instruction, that we may have hope to build one another up in love and good works. So what is it? Well, if I have an opportunity, if I have a ministry, I shouldn't neglect it because I'll answer to God for how faithful I was or wasn't in that area. Would I say it's a loss of salvation? Doesn't jibe because that's the finished work of Christ, not the negligent work of Sean. But if on the other hand I'm going to say, 1 Corinthians 3, a loss of reward? Certainly. If I fail to fulfill a ministry, and you can note some of Jesus' parables to back this up as well, I will not answer favorably for something that I 
hid or wrapped up in a napkin and buried somewhere. That's the principle here. So is Ezekiel, to defend my father's honor here, uh, saying if you don't uh, save everybody, you're not saved? No, it's saying that if you have a ministry, you have an opportunity to be rewarded or an opportunity to lose a reward. That's, I think, as far as Scripture will let us take that. Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple things that can give uh, clarification on that. And some people, I think, with tender conscience, like, oh my gosh, you know, I think about all the times where I was, you know, got a chance to share my faith, and I didn't share my faith, am I therefore guilty of the blood of all men? Uh, well, a couple things about both of these passages, it's really significant. As you mentioned, Sean, uh, Ezekiel was given a specific call by God to be a watchman. And uh, part of that call was to warn people of the impending judgment that God was going to bring about, uh, especially uh, concerning Jerusalem and uh, their apostasy. Also, uh, those individuals that survived that in Ezekiel 33, uh, Ezekiel warns them that uh, if they do the same things the people inside the walls of Jerusalem did, outside the walls of Jerusalem, they're going to get the same thing that uh, those who were inside the walls would, would uh, encounter. But it's really interesting how uh, in uh, Ezekiel 33, uh, when news comes about the fall of Jerusalem later on in the passage, it's, uh, Ezekiel makes an interesting statement. He says, uh, and then the Lord uh, literally unloosed my lips so I could speak. Hmm. In other words, there was a point where God was saying, don't say anything. You know, there was a time where God said, say something. Now, the key thing in this is verse 7. So you son of man, I made you a watchman over the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them from me. Now, in Ezekiel's case, uh, in the role of being a prophet, and we've got a huge book of the Old Testament that bears his name, if Ezekiel received these prophetic revelations from God, didn't share them, God would hold him accountable. He would mm. be responsible for the blood of those who perished, not knowing what God's standards were or what God expected out of them. Wow. Interestingly as well, when we get to Acts 20, who was Paul? Well, Paul was the Apostle Paul. He was given a very unique ministry, not only in his missionary journeys, but to be the author of uh, what we would call the vast majority of the New Testament. Now, what happens if Paul was sitting there in prison in Philippi, in, uh, in Rome, and uh, the Lord laid on his heart, ah, oh, you ought to write a letter to those Philippians out there, and I will inspire you to do so. No, I'm really just bummed out. I'm in prison. I'm not going to do it. Mm. I guess we'd be making up our own answers on well, the show. Well, <laughs> you know, we wouldn't have the book of Philippians, and God would hold a person like Paul accountable. Mm. Nowhere in the scriptures, in the New Testament, uh, really, or in the Old Testament, do you see this as sort of a pervasive uh, sort of a, boy, you better share your faith, uh, or God's going to hold you accountable for it. Certain people were given that call. There's no doubt about it. But... Uh, the, the danger of buying into that mentality is this. Do I start looking at people and sharing uh, the good news of Jesus Christ with them uh, because I care about them mm. or because I care about me? If I'm going, oh man, God's going to require their blood at my hand. I don't really like them very much. I really don't care if they're in heaven or not. But man, I, I don't want to take it heavy just because, um, no, the, the, the love of Christ constrains us, we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That was the motive that Paul used to share his faith, and that should be the motive that all of us uh, are led to in sharing our faith. Now, conversely, if I run into somebody and I see they're going down 
a bad road. I see they're believing things that are going to be ultimately destructive to them. As a pastor, I have an obligation. And, you, you know, Sean, you mentioned James chapter 3 and verse 1 about those who teach are going to receive a stricter judgment. God is going to hold me accountable for how I shepherded the flock of God because that's my calling from him. So by the grace of God and hopefully by sticking as close to the word of God as we possibly can, you know, someday I'm going to uh, receive not a judgment of condemnation from God, but uh, it's definitely going to affect the level of rewards that I'm going to receive someday in my walk with God. And so I have to take that responsibility very seriously. And, and so I guess what it comes down to is this. If we see somebody living their life, uh, believing things that we know in our heart is going to lead them away from God, why wouldn't we want to tell them about right. that? Um, you know, what, what's going to my heart where I go, oh, you know, uh, this person might think I'm a weirdo or a fanatic or something like that. Well, okay, once again, I'm caring more about me that I'm caring about them. So when the love of Christ gets a hold of our heart, these uh, kind of well-intentioned, I've heard sermons on this, uh, let's uh, rouse the people up to get out and share their faith because by golly, if you don't share your faith with the next person you see, God's gonna hold you accountable for their blood. Um, I think that tends to put the emphasis on all the wrong things. Conversely, you know, I've heard it put this way. We threw this up on our Twitter feed. If I saw somebody who was dying physically and God could use me to help save them in a physical sense, would I do that? Well, yeah, if I had the ability to do that, if I see somebody who's drowning and, you know, hasn't breathing and I can do CPR, sure, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, in the same way, if God brings someone across our path who's on the way to dying spiritually and God can use me to help them not end up in a Christless eternity, why would I want to do that? Right. You know, but it really kind of comes down to the heart. So I really appreciate those of you who sat through the message last night. We tried to emphasize that uh, in the message, but sometimes uh, the, the need to be as clear as possible uh, is, is a good thing. And you know, we like to use this program sometimes to make sure that that clarity comes across. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. as someone who was taking extensive notes on it, you weren't contradicting that statement. Right. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. So go out and share your faith. <laughs> You're going to get it. And, and, <laughs> that's right. And no, just no, as a side not. note, for those of you who know about my YouTube ministry, pointing out biblical themes in TV shows and movies and stuff, um, from that chapter, not seven, obviously, Ezekiel 33, 11, I've probably referenced that verse more in my Bible studies on YouTube than John 3, 16. Which says what? God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Yeah, and God wants us to share his heart. Yeah. So that's there you right. go. And I love how so often it, you guys bring it back to the heart of things. And that's, you know, because some of these questions, you could go a very religious, you know, will God judge us for this or not? And they say, well, well regardless, why are we doing it? <laughs> if it's worth doing it because of our heart towards it to, for the lost, then that's really the point of the whole issue, whole issue that's so many questions that come back to that. Well, what's the heart of this? Not the religious um, nuances, but what should be our heart towards them? Um, yeah, the, the, the motive matters more than anything else. Right. I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, the sounding Ching. brass or clanging cymbal. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And he goes on from there. Yeah, yeah. well, great. Well, yeah. thanks for 
Thanks for sharing that and clarifying that. Just a, a note, it seems like we have failed to go live on Facebook. Um, things are good on our end, but sometimes the, the handshake, they call it, between our company and Facebook fails for some reason if Facebook changed something or something of uh, those reasons. Yeah, that's what they call it. Handshake, they call it. So hopefully you can join us on one of our other platforms that we went uh, over. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com is a great place uh, to go. Um, I know some of you have responded to that, so that's great. Uh, well, moving on to the next question, uh, MacD, you're joining us again, so I'll bring your question to the, the top of the list. Thank you for restating that. He's asking about the Potter's House. Are you guys familiar with the Potter's House? Is it a good church? Um, <laughs> um, I'm not laughing about the Potter's House, but uh, the Potter's House is an offshoot, uh, I would say a more hardcore offshoot, of uh, the uh, Foursquare Church. Uh, disagreements with how pastors should be trained uh, led the founder of the Potter's House Church, a fellow by the name of Wayman Mitchell, to uh, leave the church in uh, 1970 and start his own thing. Uh, according to their website, uh, they claim to have 2,100 churches in 43 states and 114 nations uh, worldwide. So uh, their headquarters is in Prescott, Arizona. Oh, I was already. Uh, believe it or not, uh, you can go up there and visit them if, yeah. you, if you like. Uh, there are local branches of this umbrella group called Christian Fellowship Ministries. Calvary Christian Fellowship is not as affiliated with them. We're part of the Calvary Chapel uh, Fellowship of Churches. But you may have seen them called The Door, The Lighthouse, Living Waters, Victory Chapel, Crossroads Chapel, and La Puerta. Uh, you know, basically, uh, what you're getting there is the doctrine that you're going to encounter in a lot of Pentecostal churches. Uh, pretty close in many respects to the uh, Assemblies of God uh, in how they go about things. Uh, they really lay a strong emphasis about uh, the uh, re receiving the coming upon power of the Holy Spirit, a second experience with the Holy Spirit after uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for the empowering work, which is a doctrine we wouldn't uh, disagree with. Uh, that baptism is characterized by sign gifts uh, with an emphasis, and this is where we would differ, on the gift of tongues, which is exercised by the whole congregation during their services. Now, once again, this is where we would differ, mm. because uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul said, uh, two or at the most three, should speak in tongues each in turn and wait for an interpretation. If there is no interpretation, uh, let the person speak to himself and to God. It's not in order. Uh, so when you get together and there's this free-for-all and everybody's babbling away in tongues at once, then it finally calms down. The other thing that you tend to find in these settings, and I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, uh, is that afterwards you'll get an interpretation that goes something like, you know, my little children, I want to bless you and I want to love you and so on. Well, when we take a look at how the gift of tongues is defined in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, the gift of tongues is not God downloading a message towards us. It is God giving a person the ability to give thanks and praise to God in an upward sort of a sense. So if uh, someone mm -hmm. speaks in a tongue and then someone offers a word of prophecy, well, it might be a word of prophecy, but it's not the interpretation. And this happens quite a bit in these settings. So um, the other uh, thing that gets a little dicey is that uh, they believe uh, that uh, if you uh, have not uh, received the gift of speaking in tongues, you're not 
uh, a recipient of uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. or the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as you already mentioned earlier, uh, says, you know, do all speak in tongues? Well, no, uh, any more than all are apostles or prophets or teachers or so on. God gives different gifts to people in the body. Do they uh, believe that you can be saved without having the, the infilling of the Holy Spirit? You'd have to ask them individually, but mm. their church charter would put forward that unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. You're not it saved. hasn't been confirmed, and we thoroughly disagree with that, but who cares? This would also disagree with that, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, you know, and again... They, I was hitting my Bible, by the way, they, for those listening on the they, radio. Uh, <laughs> they also uh, teach uh, mandatory 10% uh, tithe out of the gross, not the net, uh, as a condition of uh, church service uh, or church membership and so on. Uh, there have been uh, uh, a, a tendency not just to take that but other Old Testament commands and uh, apply them to the New Testament church you know in other words you're supposed to tithe uh, because if you don't tithe God will curse your uh, mm -hmm. finances and if you want your finances to bless to be blessed then you have to tithe well again the New Testament standard for giving is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where it says, Let each man give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, you know, we believe that giving should be intelligent, it should be in harmony with principles of good stewardship, but it's not necessarily limited to the 10% tithe. The 10% tithe uh, that we see in the Old Testament was a form of spiritual income tax, for lack of a better term. It would keep up the temple. It would pay the salaries of the priests and Levites and, and so on. Uh, but uh, when we take that 10% and make it mandatory across the board, well, you know, first of all, uh, in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, that passage might indicate to me that God might want me to give more than 10% in a particular set of circumstances. Yeah. But if I go, well, I got this deal with God, uh, I've given my 10% of the gross, that's it. That's all you can expect from me. Uh, not really what I would call uh, walking in love. Uh, is giving 10% of your income to God a good thing? Is that a good uh, benchmark? Yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful benchmark uh, for someone to do it. But you should only do it, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Uh, the idea that somehow if you don't do this, God's going to get you. Uh, God's going to cause your finances to fall apart. Uh, you know, no, I don't, I don't think that's giving like every other grace that we receive, being able to follow the Lord is a, a get to, not a got to. It should be motivated out of love for God and out of love for other people rather than some, oh boy, I better give or uh, man, I'll tell you what, I'm in, I'm in big time trouble. Yeah. So, you know, once again, uh, there have been people who've come out of, uh, the potter's house, uh, who have talked about. Uh, how uh, you know the, the uh, leadership uh, would uh, be very controlling. They're kind of involved with the shepherding movement as far as giving you a discipler that makes personal decisions for you. You know, and so uh, because of these things, uh, I don't believe that would be a fellowship that uh, I would uh, recommend to somebody. Uh, I wouldn't say that if you go to the Potter's house, you're not saved. Uh, some of these uh, practices are obviously things that sincere Christians can disagree upon. Hmm. But uh, if you are going to the potter's house or considering it, boy, go in with an open Bible and uh, yeah. ask, you know, well, where in the scripture is this practice? 
you know, where in the scripture do we see this teaching? Right. And if you're starting to feel sort of this this kind of pinch on you and yeah. this compulsion uh, and uh, this sort of legalistic emphasis rather than an emphasis out of the overflow of God's spirit in our lives and walking in love, uh, I would uh, encourage you to find a church where they teach those things. Yeah, sounds so. reasonable. Yeah, do you yeah. have something to add over there, Sean? Nope. No? Oh. Okay. You got that book out with uh, yeah. with intent, it seemed, but I misread it. In anticipation of something that's oh. going to come soon, I'm sure. Oh, I yeah. see. I yeah. just wanted I to see. make sure I had the references so gotcha. that we could answer it efficiently. Gotcha. Uh, well, MACD, thank you for joining us again. I hope that you uh, caught that question. Thank you for it. I hope that helps you out. Question from Shoespeak. Uh, what are the primary differences between Catholics and non-Catholics or Protestants, I guess you could say? Uh, yeah, when it, like talking about that other church, when it comes to the non-negotiables of the Christian faith, we try to keep them as narrow as possible, not just because we want less division. If we need to divide over important issues, we will. But we also want to understand why these issues are important as opposed to secondary issues that can oftentimes be overemphasized. For instance, a different opinion about the end times is a negotiable. We wouldn't divide fellowship. It might be a precursor towards sloppy Bible handling down the road, but we want to make sure that we can still recognize someone as saved, even if their perspective of God's intent for the future is a little bit skewed, or maybe even just different than ours, which is allowed. But if, on the other hand, they get the fundamentals wrong, they would misrepresent the nature of God, what it means to be God, how we know these things about God, how we have a relationship with God. That's what it means to be a Christian. And even though you could brag, well, I'm an older mistaken Christian, well, you're still mistaken, and therefore not a Christian. Well, my mistakes are older than yours. It's still a mistake. It doesn't matter if they were made older. Things don't become more true over time, even if you destroy the evidence to the contrary. Two plus two won't equal five, no matter how much time you give it. So when it comes to, and this is true for any cult group, foreshadowing, uh, when we're talking to people, obviously affiliation with the group doesn't mean you affirm everything that they teach, but if you're going to hold someone to a title, you need to make sure that they are either in line with or not as close to their title as they claim. This is true for Mormons, this is true for Jehovah's Witnesses, this is true for Roman Catholics. And note, I will emphasize the prefix Roman intentionally, because the word Catholic just means universal. And when uh, early church fathers, for instance, would refer to the Catholic Church. They're not referring to the denomination of Roman Catholicism and all of the catechisms and sacraments and, uh, you know, writings that have been handed down through the Council of Trent and Vatican II and all that other fun right. stuff. Say that without passing out. The idea is that we're all a part of a universal church. That's what the word means. But it took on later meaning, which needs to be emphasized, lest the person you're talking to commits what they call in fancy the equivocation fallacy, using a word with two meanings, but interchangeably in order to manipulate terms. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to a Catholic, if they affirm that Jesus is God, that God has revealed himself as a trinity, which by the way, even Roman Catholics do to the second, mm -hmm. to their credit, mm -hmm. that the Bible is the final authority on what sound doctrine is, what we believe about God, and of course that we are saved because of what Jesus has done for us rather than what we do for him, then what you generally find in Catholic groups, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic groups, are just the sort of personalities that need a lot of structure in their life, and they gravitate towards yeah. Catholic or Orthodox or any of these other groups because they find that the traditions really help them 
focus in their mindset towards God in a way where they can pay attention. Uh, people who usually come out of prison or the military just have that very rigid, very structured mind, and there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's a personality type at the end of the day. So it fills a need in the body of Christ, which is why there's denominations. That being said, Roman Catholics are not Christians. You can clip that and, you know, put red text above my head and call me all sorts of names, but I say that without any fear of contradiction, because when it comes down to it, missing one of the four non-negotiables is a line that we don't cross when it comes to whether someone is a Christian or not. It's not, well, you got three quarters of them right, or in this case, 25% of them right, which is a failure in my grading system. You miss one of these, you're not a Christian. You distort one of these, you're not a Christian. You misrepresent one of these things, you're not a Christian. Roman Catholicism, according to its primary documents, modern documents, and the sources that they affirm, deny three out of the four non-negotiables. To their credit, once again, they do affirm the Trinity, but due to the fact that they would also deny that there is one and only one God, there is one being out there with unique divine attributes and prerogatives that could only be attributed to the true and living God, meaning there's only certain things God can be and called, and they would attribute it to other things. We'll get to that in a second. That's part of the definition of the Trinity. So they would at least affirm it, but because of their compromise of monotheism, and notice, not a contradiction, a compromise to monotheism, they would also, by association, deny the Trinity, but they do affirm it. Now, when it comes to the other three, where do we see that as a problem? Well, just like what we've talked about before in Mormon conversations, the devil's in the details, and the slimiest thing that you're ever going to run into somebody to do is to agree with everything that you're saying, but twist the words. We're saying the same word, but we don't mean the same thing. Well, what would a Roman Catholic, not a Catholic, a Roman Catholic, not someone who attends a Roman Catholic church, but someone, someone, someone who buys into would affirm the, the doctrine as laid out in the book of canon law. Yeah, would affirm Vatican II, would affirm yeah. the Council of Trent, all that, yeah. right? So what would be the difference? Well, they would not mean the same thing as any other Christian would. That's the definition of grace, the definition of faith, the definition of saint, the definition of righteous, the definition of sacrament or thankfulness, the definition of salvation, the definition of redemption, the definition of pretty much everything that matters in the Christian life, even the definition of bishop, for corn's sake. But when we're talking about specifics, what I would generally encourage people to do is to go to, you know, want to be as straightforward as possible, catholic.com, but if you want to be more resourceful, go to Vatican II, or just look it up online, read through the Council of Trent and their visitations, and the statements that they've declared regarding the Roman Catholic Church, and where they have authoritatively alienated and isolated everyone who doesn't affirm everything that they say, and that's the problem. So when, for example, you're going through the sacraments, and I can get a few at catholic.com here, uh, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, or just anointing the sick, the orders or the offices of leadership and matrimony, which is marriage, they would, of course, uh, get really, really far from 
again, orthodox would mean something different to an orthodox church, but sound teaching is what the word means, uh, than these things. So where are the issues? Where do they step out of line? Well, the biggest one for me, and this is for the sake of time because we have other questions, is in two main areas. That is, of course, that apart from the Roman Catholic Church, there is no salvation, so they would put a condition of church membership and affirming all of its teachings as a condition for salvation if you don't observe the sacraments as they define them. Not saying that Scripture wouldn't affirm, in a sense, the sort of things that are put forward, but that they would describe these things as necessary for salvation. Scripture itself would deny that. And then finally, the Eucharist, which just means thanksgiving, the belief of lots of fancy terms today, transubstantiation, that in the ceremony of communion, the Eucharist, this literal piece of well, carbohydrates, basically, and the wine that's passed around the room, when blessed and sanctified by the priest through a ritual, which is, of course, handed down to them by their church, not through Scripture, is going to become the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, which is a fundamental misrepresentation of John chapter 6, where Jesus says, unless you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you have you do not have eternal life in you. He goes on in the conversation to say, my words are spirit, the flesh profits nothing, but that hasn't stopped them. So noting that point, um, I talked about a compromise of monotheism, like you mentioned before, Dad, their view of Mary is a little askew. They would attribute to her divine prerogatives as well as to the saints that would only belong to God, that of course being sinless, being the most significant of them. But when we're talking about the main, main issue, uh, Mary's role in salvation, prayers to the saints and addressing those who are the sole mediators, quote-unquote, between God and men who fits that list, one, the man, Christ Jesus, not the woman, his mother. And taking this from apocryphal sources, they've distorted scripture, they've put themselves as the infallible authority and the sole interpreter of scripture, even though in the last 2,000, or actually uh, 1,600 years, um, they've only infallibly interpreted two passages. But that being said, when we're talking about the areas of concern, the fine line needs to be Do you understand what it means to be Roman Catholic? If not, then just attending a Catholic church doesn't condemn you before God. You attending a church doesn't mean that you agree with everything the pastor does. That can be good or bad. But when it comes down to it, uh, affiliation with this organization is very dodgy because the traditions of the church have gone as far away from the gospel as one could, save unless you were an outright cult and heresy like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. They haven't gone that far, but they have compromised on the non-negotiables in things like the Eucharist, in the things like the sacraments, in the things like not affirming their teachings makes you anathema, uh, accursed of God, right? Right. That's a problem. That's the problem. And it should be something that we can have good conversations with, but given the fact that uh, I have a very long track record with these conversations, it's not likely to go anywhere good. But that's the point. When it comes to what we believe as Christians, there's one God. One God. He's revealed himself as a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. They all share the unique and exclusive divine attributes as God, able to um, function independently from one another, yet do not compromise pure monotheism. Salvation's by grace through faith, not what we do, but what Jesus has done, period, end of discussion, and of course that we find this out through God's word, no more, no less. They've added to scripture. 
They've made it a condition of salvation to attend their church and observe their sacraments and agree with their traditions in contradiction to Scripture and committing classic blunders, literally, like eisegesis. If you want to know what that means, just let us know. It's isolating the text, reading into it rather than out. Uh, Making the early church fathers and church leaders today an authority over Scripture than the plain readings, and on it goes. Even adding to Scripture, which Scripture itself tells you not to do. Point being made is that. Roman Catholics, no. Catholics, per se, you have to address them individually, just like the previous church that we just talked about. Are Catholics saved? You have to ask them. Do they believe what it means to be a Christian? Does Roman Catholicism count as Christianity? No, it's a fundamental distortion. That's why the Protestant Reformation took place. Yeah, uh, and uh, I don't think it can be emphasized enough that you have to talk to the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I grew up in a very heavily Roman Catholic uh, area in Southern California, and the mm-hmm. Lord uh, started reaching you know, a, a whole lot of people. This revival that broke out in my high school through this Fellowship of Christian Athletes ministry. I mean, we started out with a group of like uh, seven people in a classroom, and pretty soon we had to move it into the gym. Wow. Uh, and uh, there were all kinds of people that would come from uh, come to these meetings and give their lives to Christ and uh, then go to St. Mary Magdalene Church on Sunday. Uh, Would I say that a person that made a uh, decision to receive Christ is not saved because they went to that church? Well, you talk to them and they say, well, this is where I grew up, where my family goes, you know. Uh, You ask them, well, specifically, you know, do you know what your church teaches on some of these issues? And they kind of look at you blankly, no, Mm. not really. Um, You know, so you really do have to talk to people on an individual case-by-case basis to find out where they're coming from. But anybody that uh, says, yeah, I believe everything that is written here in the book of canon law, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, I believe the uh, conclusions of the Council of Trent, including uh, the conclusion of the Council of Trent that anybody who says that you're saved by grace through faith alone is anathema or cursed of God, um, that puts you outside the pale, unfortunately. Yes, right. But most Catholics, uh, don't know that. Yep. So talk to them individually, uh, find out where they're coming from spiritually, uh, where someone you know, parks on Sunday morning uh, doesn't really have much to do with their eternal destiny as much as whether they have heard the message of salvation and responded to Jesus in faith. Yeah, makes sense. Great. Well, Shoe Speak, thank you for that question. Hope that helps you out with that. We have a, a question from High Up. This is a great, you're going to love this question. This is a great question right here. We're already loving it. This is, advance. yes, we're just <laughs> pre loving it. The book. <laughs> How do we know scripture is true and not made up? How do we know we're not just judgmental bigots and haters like the world calls us? How do we know scripture is true? Well, you could be a judgmental, hateful bigot, and Scripture would still be true. Those two things aren't mutually (laughs) exclusive. That's a good point. But um, if every Christian didn't act like Christ, it wouldn't make Christ any less Christ. If every Christian acted like Christ, but Christ never existed, then it's all for naught, right? It's just a myth. So the question doesn't stand or fall on our behavior. The question stands or falls on whether or not the reason for the hope that is within us is true, a la the words below my hand here. So 
when it comes to how do we know Scripture is true, it's going to be the same way we know anything is true. Does it line up with what we can know about history? Does it consistently put forward its message? And of course, can it be examined, the standard and satisfaction of any fair inquirer? And fair doesn't mean you agree with me. Fair means that you apply the rules you would apply to anything else consistently. So in history, what do we do? We've talked about the external evidence for the Old and New Testaments before. I encourage you, high up to look that up on your own time. I'll be spending more time in the New Testament in this question than you can maybe throw in more for the Old. Sure. Sound good? Sure. Now, when it comes to the reason we trust any historical document, they're usually looking for three things. First, primary sources or early sources, people who were as close to the event as possible mm. to avoid the potential of corruption over time, because that's right. going to happen intentionally or otherwise. If you can get to within the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses, which is very rare for anything over a thousand years ago, it's as good as gold as far as historians are concerned. And yeah. even if it contains some of the most, you know, obvious rip-offs of the culture around them or mythological accounts, they have no problem teaching it in schools because it's as early as things get. This is what people were saying within the lifetime or as early as we can get to the lifetime of the individuals. Does the New Testament accounts meet that criteria? Well, yes, it does. Every single one of the 27 books of the New Testament, what give us the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel in a nutshell, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 3 through 7, is all codified, meaning put into book format, within the lifetimes of the majority of the eyewitnesses with no renunciations or contradictions at all. They were apocryphal, meaning concealed, cultic, false accounts that were written afterwards, but we know that they're false, firstly, because the title page is a lie. The authors that are attributed to those books were dead by the point in time yeah, they were written. That's a problem. First red yeah. strike. Yeah. But the second thing is that we have earlier sources that would contradict them. So that's mm -hmm. the point of emphasis. We have primary sources, and when it comes to the gospel accounts, the writings of Paul the Apostle, Peter, James, and John, all of them were eyewitnesses of what they claimed about Jesus. Now, does that mean that they were telling the truth? No, it just means that they fit the right time period. That's a reason to trust it. It's not a conclusion. Understand that, because this is what oftentimes throws people for a loop. If there's a reason to question something, they automatically translate that as evidence that it's wrong. Anyone can come up with any reason to discount something ever. But if you can find actual reasons to trust something, the question is, do I have enough to form a reasonable conclusion? Primary evidences is one of them. The second is also interesting. Do we have more than one source that says essentially the same thing about what happened. We call this multiple attestation in historical circles. Now, you reference the Bible, people think that this is one book. It's not. It's a compilation of 66 books, 27 for the new, 39 for the old, all verifying and attesting to one another to verify the events that they report. So when we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were usually put together to make it accessible to people who are reading it, but those are four independent accounts, all reporting the same basic events of a life. Now, if you look up 
For example, the Ministry of J. Warner Wallace, a uh, cold case detective and forensics expert, yeah. uh, he knows that when it comes to the differences between the gospel accounts, that's actually more evidence that they are reliable than less, because if all four of the gospels said the exact same thing, they would all either have to come from the exact same brain, who would process the exact same things at the exact same time, mm. from the exact same perspective, cultural background, and emphasis to a particular audience. The Gospels don't do that. Mm. Matthew focuses primarily on a Jewish audience from the perspective of someone who is good with money. Keep the Jewish jokes to yourself for a moment. Mark was the perspective of the disciple of the Apostle Peter, John Mark, who did basically an eyewitness account from Peter's perspective with also an emphasis on Jewish culture. Luke, the historian, was a companion of the Apostle Paul who interviewed the eyewitnesses, multiple eyewitnesses in fact, and even according to modern scholars, and I don't say modern as like they're alive today, but contemporary scholars, respected minds who study these sort of things, especially on the Roman Empire, which Jesus' life took place in. What was his name? Um, Sir William Ramsey. He said that Luke was a historian of the first rank in his ability to not only mention details that were relevant to the audience of those who were reading it, but would still meet any fair inquiry today. Mm -hmm. He uh, wasn't a Christian until he did a thorough examination of the gospel accounts and then said, there's something to this, because he knew what to look for as a historian. And then the Apostle John, of course, speaking to a more broad Gentile audience, emphasized what it means to be God. The deity of Christ is a special focus in those things. Mm. Now, by the way, that in no way means that Jesus' deity is diminished in the other gospel accounts. Matthew came first, according to the actual sources, but secular, liberal, atheist sources like Bart Ehrman that put Mark first. Do you know what the opening words of the gospel of Mark are? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Subtle. Yeah. So... <laughs> multiple attestation, not only primary sources, but sources within the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses that are able to verify each other on the same basic fundamental events. There are differences, but none contradict each other. Unless you don't know what a contradiction is, then you can pretend that any difference in detail is a contradiction. But I like to stick to people who actually know what they're talking about. Sarcasm over. The third thing, that would give you a reason to trust whether or not the scriptures that we're reading are true is because of accounts of embarrassment. Do they have to admit to things that they wouldn't want to unless they had to? That gives the, uh, I guess, a weight to the sort of things that they're writing as being more worth trusting than if they, uh, well, we're just making this up whole time and saying, well, how do we make Jesus out to be? the uh, bit larger than life guy. You look at some of the apocryphal accounts and you'll do that. Uh, some of the examples that you can get in the gospel accounts themselves would be, of course, the response of the eyewitnesses themselves who all abandoned Jesus to a man, didn't believe that he was the resurrected Lord until after he'd appeared to them, and even admitting to doubt afterwards, even as he was ascending into heaven, they didn't get their acts straight until the book of Acts, pun intended. Well, on and on it goes. We can note that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women. In a first century Judean mm -hmm. Jewish culture, there was a quote from the scholars of that time, the Sanhedrin, who said, let the words of the law be burned rather than ha in the hands of a woman. They said that the woman, word of a woman was not worthy, uh, wasn't uh, accepted testimony in court. Mm -hmm. And yet the entire testimony of the Christian faith hinges in a first century Jewish audience of a bunch of men having to admit 
the women believed before I did. If they were making this up, they would have been faithful through and through. Yet they have to admit things that embarrass themselves. Why? Because there's something to admit. That's a reason to trust something. Now, is it possible that the disciples were able to see... When did Napoleon Bonaparte conquer Europe? 1700s-ish? Yeah, ish. Yeah. Seventeen hundred years into the future to well, know that beat him though. <laughs> <laughs> Little shout out to Dave. <laughs> yeah. To know what kind of standards that historical criticism would be found seventeen hundred years before it was even written, and what things they'd be looking for. Yeah, I'm sure they could have gotten lucky, but that stands in the face of every single standard of historical inquiry that we can have. And I'm just scratching the surface. But when it comes down to it and the reliability of the New Testament, there is more reason to trust it than doubt it. The only reason you do doubt it is the difference between a doubt and a question. A doubt believes there is no answer. A question is looking for one. If you want to know reasons to trust the Bible, there are reams of resources, both in writing and in audio and video today, of people that can walk you through this and explain exactly what I have, but being slightly older, probably more reliable. The point being made, though, is this. If you're in a place emotionally where you're asking questions, there are also ministries that can answer not just where you're at intellectually, but even more importantly for where you are just spiritually. Hmm. Because more often than not, and I won't attribute motive here, but there's often more things going on as an obstacle to your relationship with God than others. Uh, sorry to cut you off, but we're, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll conclude with this point. Um, look up <laughs> Gary Hammerboss and his ministry. He's not only the world-leading scholar and expert on the resurrection itself historically, but he also has a ministry exclusively geared towards people who are struggling with doubt. I encourage you to seek out his ministry and the way that he would treat you and where you're at right now. But if you have questions, the belief that there is an answer, we're more than happy and more than capable of giving you far more. This is just a sample. Very good. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge topic. Maybe tomorrow we could pick it up again. Um, we'll allow you to speak, Pastor Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. He Say the words. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Say some words and exactly. contribute. Yeah, we're out of time for today. Thank you for, for joining us, everyone. Great questions. We'll be here same time, same place again tomorrow for more of your questions on Reason for Hope. We will hope to see you then. Hopefully figure out the Facebook issue for tomorrow as well. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.